This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. On this program, as many of you will recall, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, and then we ask her, in this case, to read one of her own poems that was published in the magazine. My guest today is Danielle Chapman the poet and critic whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, of course, but also in The Atlantic, Poetry, The New York Times. Welcome, Danielle Chapman. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, the poem you've chosen to read is Mr. Cogito Laments the Pettiness of Dreams by Zygniewow Herbert, translated from the Polish by John and Bogdana Carpenter. Now, tell us a little bit about what drew you to this Herbert poem. I love this character that he created, Mr. Cogito, uh, which is a sort of diminutive of Descartes' idea, cogito ergo sum, you know, I think therefore I am, this very lofty pronouncement, uh, which Herbert employs as a sort of persona in many different poems. And It's this way of simultaneously really taking himself seriously and taking the whole endeavor of poetry and thought with utmost sincerity and seriousness while also ironizing it. You know, I remember reading these poems at the time they came out and uh, thinking that uh, there was a, a connection perhaps in some way between the way Herbert uses Mr. Cogito, and Berryman uses uh, Henry in in so many of his poems. Yeah, I was just thinking about that on the way up here. And I think the difference is that for Herbert, Mr. Cogito is a way of effacing himself or being self-critical in a way, whereas I think of Henry and Berryman almost as a way to indulge the poet's wildest notions. In Herbert, he's always stripping things down and trying to get to a clearer place. And often that is a sort of self-criticism or even mocking of himself or the poet's task. 
Let's listen to the poem, Mr. Cogito Laments the Pettiness of Dreams. Mr. Cogito Laments the Pettiness of Dreams by Zbigniew Herbert. Even dreams become smaller. Where are our grandmothers and grandfathers' entranced processions? When colorful as birds, lighthearted as birds, they mounted high. On an imperial staircase, a thousand chandeliers were glowing. And grandfather, familiar now only with the cane pressing to his side, a silver sword, and unloved grandmother who was so kind, she put on for him the face of their first love. To them... Isaiah spoke from clouds that looked like clouds of tobacco smoke, and they saw how St. Teresa, white as a wafer, carried a real basket with kindling. Their terror was as great as the Tartar horde, and their happiness in dream was like golden rain. My dream, a doorbell. I am shaving in the bathroom. I open the door. A collector hands me the bill for gas and electricity. I have no money. Return to the bathroom, meditating on the number, 6350. I raise my eyes and see in the mirror my face that is so real, I wake with a shout. If I dreamt at least once of an executioner's red jacket or the necklace of a queen, I would be grateful to dreams. It's fascinating, really. So I suppose that he is lamenting, uh, of course, the fact that the dreams that he's experiencing are those of a somewhat diminished nature. They have none of the the grand gestures. This uh, dream that has to do with a gas or electricity bill is somehow inappropriate to what the dream world should, should really include. Right. And what's so interesting here is that these other dreams that he imagines his grandmother and grandmother having are sort of out of history. You know, their terror was as great as the Tartar horde, but also they're biblical. To them, Isaiah spoke from clouds that looked like clouds of tobacco smoke. So some of those images are ironized, but at the same time, they are grand in an earnest way, you know, in a way that he as a poet longs for. What's ironic here is that Herbert himself was so entrenched in history. So this image that he has of the the collector coming to hand him the bill for gas and electricity and he has no money, he's speaking about the situation that was so real in his own life as a poet in Soviet-controlled Poland where he couldn't make any money as a poet because he wouldn't write propaganda. So there's this really interesting balance going on where he wants to get out of history in the moment in his dreams, which are dreams of a grander history, that in fantasy are beautiful and glamorous. However, you know, any student of history soon learns that that's just a romanticization and that history has always been grim. You know, I'd like to ask you, if I may, about that uh, comparison of the clouds from 
which Isaiah is speaking, and the clouds of tobacco smoke. Do you think that's absolutely appropriate there? I, I say that because it seems to me that that actually has a slightly pathetic aspect and it it has more to do, it's more of a piece with the bill for gas and electricity than one might have expected. Absolutely. When you get to the clouds of tobacco smoke, there's a very serious letdown in tone. It's almost like the punchline of a joke. Right. But do you feel at all that it's actually at variance with the burden of the poem or what the poem seems to be suggesting? I think that something a little bit different is happening there because in that stanza, the the image about from Isaiah and then also the image of St. Teresa, these are both not only religious images, but they're both mystical images. And I think what he's doing there is modulating between a sort of genuine belief in them and a cutting irony. So the grandparents really saw these things. You know, they really believed. And yet, from this point of view, they're reduced and sort of flattened by our contemporary perspective. Um, So I think there is a genuine longing there for the type of experience that the grandparents had, for real religious experience, for transformative visions. But from his own perspective, he can only experience them or see them as kind of flattened, you know, like St. Teresa is white as a wafer. Mm-hmm. Is that like a communion wafer, perhaps? Or I think it is. You know, that's how I saw it. And so it's not a very naturalistic metaphor. Um, it has this humor to it, but it also has a kind of absurdity, which is an, an aspect of Herbert's humor in general. It's hard to imagine a woman looking like a wafer. And yet, I don't know, I find there's a kind of truth to the correspondence. Actually, the truth may be that the poem is quite complex and it's not necessarily positing a a glorious then against this paltry now. It's a bit more complex than that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that goes back to this figure of Mr. Kajito, who is a way for Herbert to explore his deepest yearnings while also ironizing them. So as a poet, he was utterly committed to clarity and to stripping things down to their absolute truth. And for him, that was a political act because he was attempting to sort of isolate whatever truth he could glean from the world from propaganda and from these false realities that were crowding in around him. So he had this real, you know, fidelity to historical truth and to stripped down facts. And yet when he uses Mr. Kajito, he can kind of confess to this longing for a grand and glamorous past and, you know, a transformative religious belief and all of these things that his more philosophical nature would dismiss as illusion or deception. 
Presumably this device of using Mr. Cogito had a very particular use uh, in the sense that Spigniew Herbert could address some of the issues that were happening on the political front, perhaps, Mm -hmm. uh, in Poland, and uh, address them indirectly. Yes, absolutely. And I think that both the character does that and also his very unusual and distinctive use of syntax and the line even does that because I don't know if you could hear it in the way that I read it, but often he will, in one line, combine many phrases Mm -hmm. that you'd normally have several line breaks between or you would have punctuation separating these different images or ideas. They're often just put together without any syntactical or um, typographical indication. And that was this way, I think, of kind of whispering his thoughts. Um, So even though he was often saying things that would have been politically quite radical and inflammatory, his style whispers them rather than trumpeting them from the soapbox. And he had um, a line of the one thing that he wanted to avoid was the black foam of the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it was maybe partly self-protective, but also a kind of um, principle that he held that he shouldn't be too overly rhetorical in in his poems. And, And Mr. Cogito is, I think, the ultimate example of that. Good. Well, thank you very much indeed. That was uh, Danielle Chapman reading Mr. Cogito Laments the Pettiness of Dreams by Spigniew Herbert. And it was translated by John and Bogdana Carpenter. And it appeared at the April 22nd, 1991 issue of The New Yorker. And then in the April 3rd, 2017 issue, we published your poem, Danielle Chapman, the tavern parlour, which you're going to read for us now. But before you do that, you might just uh, give us a sense of the the background to the poem. This poem actually is a real place, the tavern and the parlour that's in the tavern. And it is one room in a house that my family has owned since about 1840. And the original tavern, which we never operated as a tavern, was allegedly built in 1790, and it was at the edge of the frontier in Tennessee. So it was one of these roadside inns that stagecoaches and horses would pull up, would ride up to, and people would spend the night. And Maybe a group of card sharps would come in next to a family in a in a wagon, and they'd all have to sleep next to each other up in the attic. And it's this very unusual place that has really not been changed at all. And so I grew up going there in the summers and spending the summer there. And it's really a kind of bizarre and amazing place because it's just a time capsule. Um, It's not insulated from the weather at all. And everything that used to be there is still there. It's kind of like a very, a very dirty museum. Is it possible that Isaiah spoke from clouds that might have looked like clouds of tobacco smoke there? (laughs) I don't know how much 
religion was happening there. Um, Probably but a bit there, of tobacco it, smoke. Definitely some tobacco smoke and maybe some tobacco spit on the floor, mm-hmm. maybe some blood from eye-gouging contests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I've only read about that. Right. It's not a family story. So what else now? Claire Singleton. Tell me about that name. So that is a later ancestor. That's actually my great-grandmother's name. And she was the last member of the family to have actually been born there and to live there throughout the year. So the other odd thing about the house is that nobody lives in it during the year. So it's only inhabited a couple of weeks out of the year. But she was the last one to properly live there, and many of her things are still there. And there was kind of a rule in in the house put in place by my grandfather when I went there as a child, you know, you couldn't move anything because it had to be in the same arrangement that it would evoke the memories that he had of her. She was called the Duchess by her entire family. Uh, Her adoring husband called her that, but it's possible that she also demanded to be called that. And then the Limoges, I suppose, is is, uh, Limoges pottery or some kind of... China. China, yeah, Limoges China, I should say. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is just another strange aspect of the house sort of being a time capsule Things like this are just kind of still there, sitting in this house that nobody lives in. Well, let's hear the poem, The Tavern Parlor. And I suppose, how would you describe it? Is it an attempt, a successful one, I think, to to describe this place? Is that basically what it's setting out to do, would you say? Yes, it's setting out to describe it kind of as I experienced it as a child. But also, I hope that it kind of evokes the experience of waking into history. The house literalizes that in a sort of bizarre way because it's there all around you. But, you know, there's also this more intellectual or even emotional process that happens when you start to really imagine what happened in a place and what the consequences of those events are. Okay, well, let's hear it. The Tavern Parlor by Danielle Chapman. The Tavern Parlor. A giant step up into the dip. The unavoidable tremble of cocktail tumblers against bottles of bourbon and bitters, droning the spittoon. All dim, unwoken, shut as the duchess's, nay Claire Singleton's, dust-caked woodcut gramophone, as the frail jail of Limoges and miniature salt shakers belling at my footfall recalled country wenches doing the quadrille with speculator's sons and Ben, the tavern houseboy in canary pantaloons, wafting a fan sewn from the tails of 50 peahens to keep off the Luciferian flies. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour 
wherever you listen to podcasts. So this last um, image here of the, the house boy fanning, I suppose, the, the privileged owners of the house is uh, takes us aback. This is an attempt to imagine what might have happened there in the tavern. But, of course, it comes out of many things that I know did happen, including, obviously, slavery. And I've done reading of many texts from the time. And, you know, one thing that just startled me so much is, which was quite commonplace during slavery, was that slave owners would romanticize their slaves as servants with these ideas out of antiquity and literature. So, you know, often slaves were given classical names like Cato and or lofty names like Justice or and things like that. But also sometimes they would sort of dress them up as if they were servants in a court. So this is an image kind of pieced together from different things that I read in that vein where the slave owners, who in this case would have also been running a tavern, have kind of created this scene of pleasure and debauchery or maybe not even consciously that, just luxury um, in this place using an African slave. And the irony or the what I hope is, you know, the, the startling part is to keep off the Luciferian flies. I mean, besides the implication of evil there, there's just this bizarre realization when you're in the South and you realize what a wild swamp so much of it is. I mean, bugs are just everywhere. It's so hot and flies are everywhere. And so these people had such an absurd fantasy of what they wanted their lives to be. And it's chilling to think of what they were willing to do to recreate that. Now, the Luciferian, of course, has our listeners will know that Beelzebub is the lord of the flies. And um, presumably, I mean, these flies, I guess the domain of, of Beelzebub is everywhere to be found here. Yeah, you know, and it's something that we can impose, you know, with the advantage of the perspective of time, you know, and yet... I know for a fact that my ancestors and the people who lived in this house before them participated in this. They would never have confessed to this being an evil or been able to notice it. It was so woven into the fabric of their lives. Um, But I think then, you know, also there's just this very sensual reality in the South of just the, you know, fecund nature everywhere around and it always trying to, you know, you're always trying to control it. And the way that the pioneers experienced this was that, you know, they were trying to subdue the wilderness. And and this was this constant obsession that they had. And yet the wilderness has never really been subdued either 
in people's natures or in the actual landscape uh, and and their efforts, you know, during the time that this it's imagined in this poem, their efforts to subdue it were just so gargantuan. And I think that they were trying to subdue the evil in themselves at the same time. Well, it very much suited uh, the pioneers, quote unquote, in this country to believe that it was an absolute wilderness right. and uh, that the people who lived there uh, really had never themselves been able to, quote-unquote, tame it, which, of course, is very far from the truth. Right. You know, this idea, you know, the wilderness became such a concept um, psychically as well as, as practically, and many of those early pioneers really imposed this idea that the wilderness itself was evil, you know, and, and that it had to be controlled because it had all of these dark forces within it. We know better now. Yeah, I suppose they had to support, you know, they had to believe that to make it seem not inappropriate that they would get up to some of the things that they did get up to. Absolutely. And to think that they could just take land, obviously, that they they very quickly developed a feeling of rights for the, that land and their own rights um, that they were willing to fiercely defend, not really quite reckoning with the fact that uh, they hadn't bought it um, or properly come by it in the first place. But also, you know, not only to overcome the moral problems, but also just the practical problems, because they were enormous. If their goal was to set up a house in a place that had had not been um, inhabited before, the challenges were incredible. And so they had to have this kind of, well, what what they termed frontier spirit. You know, so (laughs) they had to overcome a lot, although now we wonder what exactly it was in the name of. The Tavern Parlor by Danielle Chapman, read by her. Thank you very much indeed for being with us today, Danielle Chapman. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And Mr. Cogito Laments the Pettiness of Dreams by Spignave Herbert, translated by John and Bogdana Carpenter, as well as Danielle Chapman's own poem, The Tavern Parlor, may be found at New Yorker. Thank you so much for joining us today. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is the Pintagree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.